Hi. If you're listening to the show, you know that from time to time, we say words, words that may not be suitable for children. So why not take a moment, make yourself a hot cup of tea, put your kids somewhere safe, and enjoy this adult-only podcast. Ooh, that was sultry. So nice to have the gang back together. So it's all, so wonderful. It's nice that you kind of and the entire right wing media are at six of one, half dozen the other. I know. Yeah, everyone has to choose. It's nice. You, you it's could, nice. Guys, we'll have predictably to be one or the other. No one told us to stop reason. interrupting each other. What? I'm no sorry. one said to stop Excuse interrupting me? each other. The what? It makes it really hard to write to edit. Hello, Jews at Al. This is Unorthodox. I am Mark Oppenheimer, sometimes known around the office as Merrick Oppenheimer. I'm joined as ever by Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Stop trying to make Merrick happen. I'm trying to like, Merrick was big on Friendster. I bet. And senior writer Liel Leibowitz. It's pronounced Lial. <laughs> Leo, according to your lunch order. According to my Starbucks. That's, his, yeah, that's like his, his name. Leo? His I'm not going to bother with some archaic my, Hebrew names. Like, no, it's actually Hebrew for I have so a God. Those are, they don't you know, care. when my mother was, um, one of one of her jobs when we moved to New York City was in the classifieds department at the New York Times. And you weren't supposed to use your real last name. She was newly Mrs. Oppenheimer. But she'd say, hello, New York Times classified, Miss Walters. Was that her maiden name or just a made up name? It's her father. No, her maiden name was Kirshner. Her father was Walter Kirshner. First of all, there's all kinds of like Freudian shit going on right there <laughs> that she would take her dad's, dad's first name. But second of all, like then why wouldn't she? Why would she go so goyish? Don't you feel like Walters is crypto Jewish? Doesn't it? Isn't it Green or Miller or Garf- Garfield? It's like, come on, Miss Walters. Know. You why know go, why go crypto? Well, I, I'll ask her. Um, our Jew of the week is the very non-crypto Yasha Monk. He's a political scientist who has written about being Jewish in Germany, of all places. Like, nothing crypto about him. And our Gentile of the week is novelist Ruth Gilligan, who's written a book that involves Ireland. And is, and and is Irish herself. And is very gentilly. Uh, so, Jews, what's up? What's going on this week? Guys, guess where I ate last night? Where did you eat last night? I would night? say, let me let me see. Hold, hold on. on. Not hold an on. advertisement. Jack's Wife Frida? I ate at Jack's Wife Frida. Cool. Okay, we have to slow down here. It's called Jack's Wife Frida. That's correct. Right? Not Rita. No. Jack's, wife, Jack's Frida. wife Frida. When we all say it fast, Rita was Jack's like, second wife. <laughs> like, we do not like her. Rita, we like, like his first like wife. Rita Hayworth. Frida. Okay. Frida. Yes. Jack's wife Frida. Correct. Got it. Yeah. How was the repast at Jack's wife Frida? It was good. I was thinking about getting the schnitzel because weren't you talking last week? I was. About schnitzel, they do the schnitzel with the mashed potatoes that's, and the Israeli salad. That's that's. Is every, that like an Israeli dish? That's that combination. Every dinner for me between the ages of twelve and eighteen. I mean, that's like a dream kid meal. It's the best freaking meal. I ever. didn't have it. But- I stepped out of this interview with Maya and literally bought a whole like a box, like an Amazon box filled uh, with piri piri sauce, which it's, I love. I mean, yeah, so good. That was really fun. And those of you who don't live in New York, what's wrong with buy, you? Those of you Why don't do you live make here? poor life choices? Get the cookbook. Buy the cookbook. And um, buy the cookbook. So, and, and move to New York. You were in Alaska. I was in Alaska last week. Yep. Uh, I was working on a little story, a little something-something that's going to come out in a little little publication in, in a little while. But Alaska, Alaska in May is amazing. I was in Juneau. Here's what's hilarious is among the people, there's actually a house in Juneau. I'm sorry, Mark. What's hilarious is you in Alaska. Is me in Alaska. Because that's- How cold were you? That's literally northern exposure. Isn't that the plot? It is the plot. Oppenheimer goes to Juneau. It's good that you got all the our finest sitcoms Mm -hmm. over in Israel. Um, How cold was that? It was was like 60 in, I mean, it's May. It's, you know, it's not January. I've been to Anchorage in January years ago. Uh, But this was, it was totally temperate. It was really nice. And um, here's what's funny is that among the people I met, was um, a state legislator named Adam Wool, who was from Newton, Massachusetts, who is now in the Alaska State House. And I was thinking, like, is this dude a Jew? I think this dude's a Jew, right? Newton, 
Adam, like wool. Who knows what? Who knows what wool is? Yeah, but wool is... but I'm thinking like this. I think this dude's an so MIT. How do you, decide, I think how do you like figure tribe. it out? Well, so he he actually outed himself because what was hilarious was we were chatting and he was pointing out that. So the Juno is not near anything. It's only reachable by boat or plane. You can't drive there. And he so the legislators, it's basically like, you know, it's it's wet, hot American summer for four months of legislature. It's like summer camp. They all have to find crash pads. Some of them sleep in their offices in the state house. It's like crazy. There's nobody who's commuting in and out or leaving weekends. They're all just put in. It's like super intensive summer camp for the until they have a budget. Right. And so they all rent apartments or Airbnbs or whatever. And then but then they they get kicked out when the tourist season starts, because around May 1st, you can make more money than a state legislator could afford to pay you by having, you know, moose hunters or campers or bird watchers or whatever come up. And teen tours. Teen tours. So they all get fire kicked, and ice. So they all get kicked out and they have to go find other lodging. And Adam Wool, Jew of Newton from Juton, was living with two other guys, I think Les and Dave, who were the other two bald bearded Jews in the Alaska state legislature. So they have an alpha house. Of like a fraternity, a fraternity, <laughs> a ZBT, if you will, <laughs> of like the Jewish state legislators in Alaska crashing together. I didn't ask them if there were Jello shots. I didn't ask them. No, that, no Jello. A, that's a reality. <laughs> show. No gelatin so, in that yeah. house. So wait, how did he say he was Jewish though? He just said, "Oh, me and the other two. No, Jews. he made a yeah, he did. He was really funny. It was he made a joke about like me and the other two bald bearded Jews are living together. It was like or it might for been... Shavuos, you'll never <laughs> believe what we do here in Juno. Yeah. Um, in other news of Northern Jews, we have Drake is in the news this week. Senior Drake correspondent Stephanie Butnick. What was the news? Yeah, he broke the he broke Adele's record for the most Billboard Music Awards. He got like thirteen this year. So my feeling is that, like the Golden Globes, that's one of the fake awards. I agree. Like I'm into the Big Four. It's EGOT or nothing. It's about to say the Billboards, <laughs> the Oscars of irrelevance. <laughs> I did. I don't watch the Billboards. I'm really proud of. I'm really happy for Drake. Are you? Though? He's getting a little big for his britches. Is that a phrase? Br- bridge, please. <laughs> it is. <laughs> bridge, please. That's funny. Nice. Thank you. You know who I do love is um, Holocaust survivor Esther. <laughs> <laughs> Esther. It was great, by the way, last week's episode listening to you do the segues, Stephanie. They're really you, difficult. They're really, you can pun, but I can see. You have Speaking to s- of Jews who overcame adversity like Drake. <laughs> you have to sell you know, the. Also started from the bottom. <laughs> but, but not got all of her friends here because. Because most of them died. Oh my god! <laughs> on the march. Of- anyway, sorry, Esther Begum. Of Esther, I'm so sorry. Plymouth. I don't think she's listening. I mean, how amazing would it be if she were? If she were an unorthodox listener, at the age of eighty-eight. We would also buy her a beer. If any of you is from Plymouth, Minnesota, and you can get this into the earbuds of Esther Begum, we will buy you a beer. Tell us about um, Esther Begum. Esther Begum is eighty-eight. She did not graduate from high school because she had to flee genocide, and she <laughs> bad made it, excuse again. And she made it to Minnesota, where uh, just last week she was given a diploma by the I never know how to pronounce this Wayzata High School W A Y Z A T A. It's a medium-sized town in Minnesota. Man, the Goyim have some ch- such funny names. I think that's a native name, actually. It's still Goyim. Still Goyim. Uh, the Wayzata High School class uh, gave her a blue cap and gown, and she received her diploma surrounded by children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Mazel tov. I'm sorry, but is the best Esther. prescription for a Holocaust survivor really to tell her to wear a uniform and march in a direction in a line with other people <laughs> who dress just like her? Is that really what we're doing? We're reclaiming the uh, the uniformed goose-stepping like, our, our gowns are stripes this year. I hope you don't mind. And then, you know who else started on the bottom but quadrupled the family fortune? <laughs> Donald John. Joseph. John? Is it John? It's John, Donald man. John, DJ Trump the first. 
Trump goes to Israel. Oh, my God. It turns out when he leans up against the Western Wall that we discover he blends into it. His hair is the color of the Western Wall. It's beautiful. The only yarmulke he could find was one of those little flimsy black nylon numbers. He should have had an, a, Don't an they oval have a office. They ha- one? Obama had a pres- an oval office yarmulke. Probably they haven't thrown filled out. the position of the person who, whose job that was. <laughs> isn't, it Jer- lean. isn't it Jared's job? Yeah, isn't Jared... Jared is sleeping on the job. Jared thing. is so the Jared, house. Jared, you do those little hats, right? You can make those for me. That's exactly how the conversation I bet goes. it's like Jared's bar mitzvah yarmulke that he was wearing. <laughs> what do you think his bar mitzvah theme was? It was like money. Jared's jungle. <laughs> it was Jared's jail. It was Jared's dad. Get out of free. Is in prison. Get out of jail free. <laughs> no. So Too soon. DJ Trump Not soon enough. is in Israel. He meets with uh, – at one point he says it's good to be out of the Middle East. He'd been in Saudi. Then he goes to Israel. It says it's good to have left the Middle East, not realizing Israel's also in the Middle East. Uh, ish. Ish. He tries to hold hands with Melania and gets slapped away. According to the mainstream media. Right. Fake news. So I think we're missing the funniest story from this trip because it was not reported in American media. And it is worth our listeners' time. Um, so Trump lands at the airport, Right. And this is Israel. A lot of our listeners have been to the airport in Israel. They know it to not be an orderly place. Is this a, is this kind of like there's a, good chocolate? A gentle way of saying. It. I mean that that luggage claim is like and so contact sport. And so you know who makes it through the security line uh, and sort of like finds a way to take selfies with Trump? Uh, one of my favorite Israeli politicians, a gentleman by the name of Oren Chazan, who started out his life literally as as a pimp organizing sex sex tours. Is that like a community uh, organizer? To, it's a community organizer of brothels in Bulgaria, I believe. Uh, and uh, a couple of months ago made headlines in Israel because and this is Wait, I so think, then he beca- went into politics. Went into politics. He's like, what else would I do but Did go into Israeli became politics? Became a Likud member of Knesset. Oh, wow. And then made headlines a couple of weeks ago because, and this is I think a first and unorthodox that this word is going to be used, because his cock rink got infected. A metal device he wears on his penis to prolong his pleasure got infected and he had to be rushed to the hospital. This was evening news in Israel. <laughs> How did is... you imagine? Wait a second. And in other news, How a did minister, news... member of Knesset Oren Chazan's cock ring got infected. <laughs> but, they're like, but at least he's not going to jail for corruption. <laughs> or for raping now, eight women like our former president. What to be is clear, going on? This First is Israel evening news saying shalom, friends. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear. It wasn't the ring that got infected. It was probably the cock. The ring is probably doing fine. Mark, just I to be thank clear. you for Guys, that. this is unorthodox. You just get that nuance Second, you wouldn't get elsewhere. We just want to say cock ring as much as we can because we will never get to say it again. Legitimately. How did that news break? Like in the United States, yeah, sometimes, you know, an orderly sells a tip to TMZ or Access Hollywood or but like he probably generally himself. Right. Like generally that kind of news can be kept under wraps. Did he issue the press release? Pretty, said, pr- pretty sure. <laughs> he was just like, hey, gang. Okay, guys. Like, for my iPhone. <laughs> Ow. So speaking of his iPhone, so uh, Mr. Cochrane takes a, takes a selfie. Oh, yeah. I forgot we were talking about anything other than this. <laughs> with, with, with Donald Trump. Like literally pushes his way past security, puts his This is paws. all in the airport. This is on the freaking tarmac, right? Trump just landed from airport, you know, Air Force One. Melania just slapped his hand. He's standing there, bewildered. It's hot. Oren Khazan pushes his so way. There are like crowds of people past here. Past security says, "Dude, can we take a selfie?" And Trump's like, "Sure." Then Oren Khazan, this is the best part, takes a selfie. This Likud member of Knesset takes a selfie with Donald Trump and posts this on Instagram with the caption, "Dumb and Dumber."
love is a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring Bound by wild desire Um, before we leave behind the topic of Trump in the Middle East, you know, one of the things that a lot of us saw on TV, on social media, was that that shot of Trump at the wall. I mean, he was really like getting very intimate with the wall. He was really right up there. So he we put that note like very far in the wall. Very far. I don't understand how. He was almost elbow deep. Oh, God. <laughs> In the wall. So we actually thought we wanted to we wanted to figure out what was going on there. So we thought we would interview um, the wall and we've uh, we've arranged a satellite hookup uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, hello, Kotel. Are you there? Tov, Tov. We have some questions for you. Do you have some time? I, I have all the time in the world. I've been standing here for thousands of years. What else do you think I'm doing? You never call. You never write. It's always these notes. So it was a big week for you. You got the president of the United States. He, he left you. He, he came to, for a visit. How was it? It's very, very small hands, I have to tell you. <laughs> now, when he put those hands really deep in, what did, was there a note? Was, there, was it just, just a little love pat? What was going on there? Was he praying? Like, what was he, what was he doing when he was there? Was he contemplative? Well, he was looking up, you know, that uh, building uh, just uh, just above me with the golden dome. He was like, that gold building looks very good. I wonder if I could put Trump's name on it. <laughs> and, and did he leave a note? What did, what, did he, what did he write to you? He left a tweet. What, what did the tweet say? He said, Kotel, low energy, sad. <laughs> now, we noticed just a little bit to, to the right, if you're facing the wall, um, Ivanka went as well. And, and yeah, Yael. Yael. That was a much nicer visit. And and did she? What did did she leave a note? Did she did she just touch you gently? What what happened there? She uh, had a prayer, but uh, you know, I uh, I promised with the ladies I never tell with a prayer. But let's just say it uh, had to do with a Jared. Uh, Kotel, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, what's next in your future? What do you have? Uh, any foreign dignitaries? Any uh, any peace initiatives? What's coming up next? Well, you know, Stephen Tyler from Aerosmith promised to me he's coming back to the Kotel very soon. Very big Aerosmith fan here. Okay, well, dream you know on. My favorite Aerosmith song. What's that? It's called "Wall This Way." <laughs> you get it? It's a joke. All right, Mr. Kotel, thank you for joining us on Unorthodox. See you on Birthright. See you on Birthright. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. 
Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Our Gentile this week is Ruth Gilligan. She's an Irish novelist and a journalist living in the UK. Uh, She's the author most recently of Ninefold's Make a Paper Swan, a great book that's inspired by um, the largely unknown story of the Jewish community in Ireland. Welcome, Ruth. Hello. So the novel tells sort of these interwoven, really nice stories um, that are all about different different time periods, but all these all these sort of Irish Jewish stories and characters. Did you grow up knowing Jews? Was this history something that you were raised with, or did you discover it later on? So basically, growing up in Ireland, I had no real idea about the Jewish community. And ironically, it was only actually when I left Ireland and I went to England for university, I studied at Cambridge, and loads of my friends were Jewish. Um, and we would just talk sometimes about, you know, oh, the Irish and the Jews, we've got loads of similarities. You know, we've got these huge diasporas and we've got like this, um, you know, huge literary tradition, this persecuted minority thing. And and basically we used to just like joke about this and talk about this. And then one time we were like, wait a second, do we even have Jews in Ireland? Do we have a Jewish community? Does that exist? Um, So I just Googled it. Um, And I kind of started reading about the community and their history and how the Jews found themselves in Ireland. And it was just so fascinating. And I was like, how do I not know any of this? So I started reading books and, you know, websites and archives. And I just kind of became obsessed. And so began the next five years of my life writing and researching Ninefolds. And so part of the pleasures of, you know, being, being, a novelist is kind of immersing yourself in, in this world. T- take us through this. I mean, what are some of the things that you're feeling and discovering and are delighted by as you're learning about this community and its history and its habits? Well, I mean, as I said, I did all the usual things like reading books and going to libraries and delving through archives. But, you know, then I started kind of contacting members of the Jewish community um, in Ireland and also particularly down in Cork because that's where the Jewish community first arrived. Um, So the best thing was, you know, obviously all the facts and the history was great, but it was the stories that I was like, oh, my God, this stuff is gold. So, like, everyone I met, for example, the first thing they would say to me was like, oh, well, did you hear the story of how the Jews first arrived in Ireland? Um, and they have this story that, you know, the Jews were fleeing the pogroms in Eastern Europe at the turn of the 20th century, and they were on boats bound for America, uh, and the boat docked, and the captain called out, Cork, Cork, but they thought he was saying, New York, New York, <laughs> so they disembarked, and they thought that they'd reached Oh, because that's how the book opens. Is that a, that's really exactly. true? Yeah, I totally stole that. So <laughs> it's not really true. It's really true that they believe it. It couldn't no, possibly I mean, be well, true. I don't know. I became really interested in the fact that I kept being told this story and that it had been kind of subsumed into the identity of the community and, and crucially that it had been kind of passed down through generations. Well, this, this is the basis uh, for the famous Frank Sinatra song, Cork, Cork. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is like, this is like at, at various points in my life, I've had several different Jews tell me completely earnestly the story of some long lost cousin named Ike Ferguson. Do you no, guys Sean know Ferguson. That's it. Yeah. What? You've about some, well, so in the book it's different, but it, in the story someone goes to Ellis Island and he says Sean Ferguson, which in Yiddish already forgot. Yeah, and yeah. then they're like Sean Ferguson. See, I always heard it as Ike Ferguson. I forgot. And I'm, I'm yeah. forget. Uh, right. But Sean Ferguson is the Irish version. So, Sean Ferguson is in the book. So, are these like sort of the, the Jewish lore? These these stories? Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of you know the most interesting thing for me was not necessarily the facts 
but more the stories and the way that they've been kind of braided into this community. So storytelling actually becomes like as much of a like theme and motif in the novel as well as like what actually provided some of the some of the characters and the storylines. No, wait, did you have any, let's say as a once you were kind of conscious as a thinker and reader, let's say you're 12 or 13, I'm sure you were a bookish girl. Did you have a, a notion of what Jews were like? Did you have a stereotype of them or an idea of them? When you, if, if someone said picture a Jew, did you have something that came to mind? I mean, I would like to think that I was somewhat enlightened, but I feel like not, you know, in Ireland, all discussions about religion just center around whether you're a Protestant and you're Catholic. Obviously, then a bit later, the whole like idea of Leopold Bloom and Ulysses ah, and that right. being a pretty famous Irish Jew was kind of there in the background and obviously all the reviewers mention it and you know if I had a if I had a euro for every time someone tells me that I had hooked bad because I was daring to to write about <laughs> Irish Jews even though James Joyce had already done so um I'd be a rich lady so so from the flip side what what has so you go to Cork you go to tea with these people what do they say are they ask are they curious why you care about their stories is it are they defensive are they worried about being cast in a bad light what, what is their response you know what I think increasingly like I've discovered no matter what I'm writing a book about um, people are really flattered <laughs> like they're just like wow you you know you care you want to hear about me and my family and my people and yeah come in have a biscuit let me tell you everything I think also there was a, a consciousness that you know the community is really depleting like there's you know apparently the, the numbers are up to like 2000 now but even kind of five years ago when I was writing the book it was more like closer to 1000 so I think a lot of people were just delighted that some of these stories potentially were going to get told. One guy down in Cork, they're like he was like the self-appointed last remaining Jew in, in Cork. And he was like this lovely old man who was just super friendly. And, you know, he still had the keys to the shield and stuff, even though it never got used because I hadn't had a minion in years. And, you know, he took me around and he told me stories and he was so immensely generous. And, you know, the irony is that, you know, this time last year, the Cork synagogue shut down after 100 years because it's just it, it couldn't survive. And, and it's now been bought by the Church of the, the Seventh-day Adventists, which that, is fascinating. To that happened in New work. Haven, too. There's an old, the Seventh-day Adventists moved into, crazy, an old, right? into an old synagogue. Yep. So it makes yeah. your book so much more timely, then. Right, your novel will be the last he, that will was and the last testament Jews. of this Ireland's was, Jews. <laughs> I mean, it is crazy, right? And this guy also, about six months ago then, on the front page of the Irish Times, there was his obituary. So he Aww. passed away. So luckily, I you know, managed to send him a copy of the book and, and correspond with him does, again does before he passed away. More, but it's just a sign of the times, you know. Does that put more pressure on you to, to, to accurately, you know, document this community, even in a, in a novel form? Yeah, big time. And I think also, like, some of the, you know, most of the reactions have been, like, immensely positive, as I said. But there have been people who have kind of reached out to me and been like, oh, you know, you, you didn't mention the, the, the Jewish Lord Mayor of Cork and the... <laughs> And you know, That's I kind of Jews, say, you know, in the in the 70s, and I kind of say, well, look, the book isn't set in Cork in the 70s, and, <laughs> and also it's a novel, so you know, there is this kind of responsibility that I should have mentioned to everyone and all the Jewish aspects of Irish life in the whole course of right. the 20th century. Uh, otherwise, is- it's anti-Semitism, of course. <laughs> I mean, you know that by now. Well, <laughs> so, there did come a point, like even the first draft of the novel. You know, my editor would have to say, Ruth. Did you just shoehorn this in because you think it's interesting, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the plot? And I'd be like, eh, maybe. <laughs> so, you know, at the end of the day, like I'm writing fiction. I am writing a novel. So I, I kind of had to remember that. 
I mean, it's so funny. Like, there are other bits also that I want to think, even in the book, you know, there's like, there were Jewish people involved in the IRA and in that fight for independence. And then equally, you know, um, a while later, you know, Jabotinsky and some of the Zionists got in touch with the IRA and was like, and we're like, right, tell us everything. Give us some tips because you guys have done exactly what we want to do, i.e., you know, beaten the Brits and, and set up your homeland. So we want to do that. So that kind of parallel was, again, something I'd never really thought about before, but was kind of fascinating how much that really was the case. And again, that was something I wanted to shoehorn into the book. But at some point I had to draw the line and be like, okay, I need to stop. Well, time um, time for a second book then. I know, yeah, right. This one this one should be set in Israel. Oh, I love that. <laughs> a love story between uh, a nice Irish girl and an Israeli parent. And does Jabotinsky make a cameo somewhere in there? First, or are yeah. you just like done with Jews at this point? <laughs> well, I worry. I think like my parents now, you know, they they cut out if they ever see the mention a mention of like Jews in the Irish Times. They will cut out the article and then they will amass a little pile and then they will post it to me in London. Oh, and I will so get these sweet. envelopes full of full of little news stories, either about, you know, Jews in Ireland or maybe like the Jewish community in Taiwan or like You could send them a Taiwan. note saying, Mom, and Dad, then, stop being such Jewish parents. <laughs> Do they think you're going to convert? Sorry? Are they worried you're going to convert? I don't think so. That One of the characters <laughs> in the book is Irish Catholic who is considering... Converting, right, for her British yeah. Jewish boyfriend? You've got the right first name for it. I know. And at one point in my life, I did have a, a pretty serious Jewish boyfriend. So obviously, everyone loves to think that this book is just a product of. But me you're really Ashling. <laughs> yeah, and that I considered converting, which is not the case. But, you know, whatever. Let them think what they do. Was your boyfriend <laughs> like the same eye banking magician <laughs> no, in, the, in the book? <laughs> okay, so one, no. I have an important question for you. The word like appears very often in, in the sort of in the text of the book, in the in the dialogue. Is that a, is that an Irish yeah. thing to say like a lot? Yeah, we are, especially in Dublin. We're very, I think, unfortunately, I think it's quite, we're quite Americanized. So we say like a lot. I, yeah, because I say like all the um, time and I felt like, I felt, I, I felt at home in the dialogue. So you like got it from us. Essentially, thanks for that, guys. Yeah, you're welcome, Ireland. My final question for you is, uh, goes back to a show we did about a year, year and a half ago. Oh, yeah, when you got in trouble with... Yeah, where I, <gasps> where I mocked... I compared the people trying to effect an Irish language revival to, uh, to the, the Yiddishists who want to effect a Yiddish language revival. And I thought I was being friendly and sort of saying, hey, we all have our kind of, you know, our, our beautiful, poignant, hopeful crazies. Uh, who are at some, you know, who think that they can like bring this dead language back. But, you know, it's there's just a bunch of I think I said sad old men dancing at a festival or something. And I really was saying like, you know, us Jews and Irish, we got a thing in common. But boy, did I get creamed by a lot of Irish Twitter. And um, and I, I owned it. I said, you're right. It was insens- It was insensitive to the struggle that that and the, the decolonizing uh, that but you people are, got really mad. But people got really mad. How, like. Just, I'm trying to ask this as sort of um, in, in as non-biased a way as possible. But like, are there? Do people speak Irish around you a lot? Is that a thing? So the answer is no, but I think it is still very, very prominent in our lives. Like every road sign in Ireland is in English and Irish. Every public sign for like a toilet or the exit or, you know, is in English and Irish. Uh, Irish is compulsory in high school. Like you study it from the age of five until the age of 18. Um, So people, very few people would have it as their first language or even, you know, 
speak it a lot, but it is still like hyper present, like visually and in, in the education. System. Like, how's your Irish right now? Well, my Irish now is pretty rubbish. Like, I mainly use it if I want to talk to my friend on the tube and like say mean things about someone else in our tube carriage. Um, but you know, at age eighteen, when I'd like been studying it for thirteen years, um, yeah, it was pretty good. Can you like talk some trash about someone as though you're on the tube right now? Say, say you met a person named Mark, right? <laughs> say he has luscious black hair and he's, you know, five kind foot of, seven yeah, and like, three what would you say? Just, you know, say, look at that nerd's hair. Look at that. Fair care on gluing, sure. Wow. That, wow. that sounded yeah. cutting. That language is back. Yeah, it's not very attractive um, in terms as languages go. But again, you know, you actually hit on something really, really interesting because I feel like it's, you know, go back 100 years ago when, uh, you know, the Hebrew is being revived and, and we're like, oh yeah, we're going to get our independence and we're going to have this lovely nation where we, we speak Irish. And basically we got independence and then we were like, you know what, the Irish, switching to Irish thing, that's not very practical. Yeah, that's let's, too just, much. let's just stick with English. Whereas, you know, Israel really went for it. So uh, again, it's this, it's this kind of interesting parallel that, that didn't quite match up. Ruth, you need, were... you need a second novel about us. There's no way around it. Yep. Yep. You, yeah, you might it's, need a, it's like hummus and Guinness on the beach in in Herzliya. That's right. <laughs> I have actually done like a photo shoot before where I had like some matzo bread and cans of Guinness. Oh, that's yeah, I know. That's a fetish photo for somebody. <laughs> we don't know who, but for somebody's enjoying that photograph a lot. Uh, Ruth Gilligan's new book is Ninefolds Make a Paper Swan. Um, thank you so much, Ruth. Thanks, Ruth. Thank Thanks you. Having me, guys. Bye. Bye. Some of them come from Kerry, and some from the County Clare. Dublin, Whitlow, Donegal, and some from Old Kildare. Some from around across the sea, from Boston and New York. And the boys who paid the black and tans are the boys from the County Clare. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our Jew of the Week is Yashal Munk. He teaches at Harvard, and he's a fellow of the New America Foundation. Uh, he has a new book out, which is called The Age of Responsibility, Luck, Choice, and the Welfare State. Uh, brand new. Th- this month, right, Yasha? 
That's correct. Yeah. They just cut the ribbon on it. And uh, and he hosts a podcast. What's your podcast called? The Good Fight. The Good Fight. And we are excited to have Yasha here because Yasha's career was like it was like made for the Trump moment. It's like it's like you were born for such a time as this. That makes me sound so dark. It's, it's like, <laughs> no, but so, so here's the first question: Someone who does so much research about the the resurgence of authoritarianism, which is your field of study, you're sitting there. It's the night of November eighth. You're watching the election. Everyone else, I imagine, at Harvard is devastated. Are you thinking like ka-ching? <laughs> I do feel a little bit like a sort of you know d- defense attorney who's you know working for a mass murderer, and you think I really want him to go to prison, but I guess if he. Uh, goes free then it's good for my career <laughs> um, you know it, no I, I mean I would much rather go back to being a lot more obscure than I am right now and not have Trump in the White House I don't have, I don't have any uh, no ambivalence about that um, you study the fragility of democracy is that a, is that a fair way to put it yeah I think that's one way of thinking about it um, I, I would say that I'm studying some of the sort of deep causes that have led to, you know, real disenchantment with our democratic institutions and which has created the space for people to support somebody as as radical as Donald Trump. So what country are you most worried about now? You've written about Europe. You've written now about the United States. Um, Obviously, you have an eye to the rest of the world as well. And you're looking at this creeping authoritarianism. Obviously, some countries are, are already there. I mean, Russia, it's a little, you know, that 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 dog has left the pound. But what about countries that could go either way? Who are you worried about? Yes, let's distinguish, first of all, between countries where, you know, we always knew that democracy was fragile, that it hadn't completely taken root yet. Um, And the developments there are pretty bleak. So, you know, you mentioned uh, Russia, but obviously at this point, I think Turkey is no longer a democracy. You see very worrying developments in places like Hungary and Poland. But, you know, just looking at the supposedly most consolidated democracies, the countries where it's been in place for longest, um, I would say that I'm worried about different places in different ways. So um, in my mind, there's at least two big drivers of this populist moment, and it's um, the sort of problem of identity and integration and slowly transitioning from a mono-ethnic, monocultural to a multi-ethnic democracy in much of Western Europe. Um, and it is the stagnation of living standards from one generation to the next. And that's strongest in the United States. So I would say that I'm most worried about the economic dimension in the United States, and I'm most worried about the identity dimension in Western Europe. And so when you're ascertaining uh, the, the fragility of, of a given democracy, what, what are some of the yardsticks that you're going for? Uh, how do you measure precisely the strengths of institutions or people's commitment to democracy? What, what, what should we be looking at? Yeah, so one way of thinking about this is that political scientists had this theory of democratic consolidation. Um, they always recognized that democracy was pretty fragile, that it was difficult to get to be a stable democracy, um, that there are some rich countries that never became democracies, that you know, some countries were democratic but not very affluent, uh, struggled to sustain their democracies. But they are also saying, look, once you are affluent and you have changed governments for free and fair elections a couple of times, you really don't have to worry that much anymore. And the way you can tell that democracy is stable is that it's become, and this is the sort of um, often repeated phrase in the literature, the only game in town. So what does it mean to be the only game in town? Well, you know, it's got to mean that um, citizens give a lot of importance to living in a democracy that they wouldn't really consider alternatives to democracy, but they're not open to army rule or other forms of authoritarian government. Um, And finally, that all of the main 
players in the political system accept democratic rules and aren't willing sort of to, to, to jettison those rules in order to win an election. So those are the things I would look at. And those are the things that I, that I have looked at in some of my research with, you know, some, some really striking findings, right? So the number of Americans who think it's important to live in a democracy is lower now, especially among young people, it's lower. The number of people who think democracy is a bad system of government is higher, and so on. And so if you had to rank our fragility, say, on a scale from Dwayne The Rock Johnson to, say, Barbara Bush, uh, how, 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 how fragile <laughs> wow. are we? Um, <laughs> so I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to engage with that whole uh, uh, metaphor, but um, uh, I, think, I think it's pretty worrying. I mean, we have now elected somebody into office who clearly doesn't respect basic democratic rules and norms, who threatened to lock up his political opponent during the campaign, who openly um, calls the press enemies of the American people, and who in the last weeks has graduated towards acting on some of that rhetoric, who actually has fired the director of the FBI explicitly because he wanted to undermine the independence of the institution, its ability to conduct investigations into Trump's wider universe. So, um, you know, we've also, on the positive side, seen a real response of independent institutions. We've seen a lot of protests against it. Um, so I think we're in sort of murky territory. Um, I don't yet know how this movie ends. But the fact that um, we're in a position of uncertainty at all, the fact that there's very reasonable ground for worrying about resilience of our institutions is itself shocking. And you're a newly minted U.S. citizen, right? I am. So how does this feel to you beyond, you know, beyond the research, beyond the academics? How does it feel to you as, as someone who just sort of started their journey here? Well, first of all, it, it felt really great to uh, swear to defend the U.S. Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Um, there, was a, there was a special moment. And, 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 and uh, look, I think one big dimension of this is, you know, how do you create a multi-ethnic society? It is really difficult for people to ha who have this sort of mono-ethnic understanding of their nation to accept that others are the real compatriots, that they can have a real common civic life together. And I think that with a possible exception of Canada, the United States is closer to that than any other country. And so for me, um, defending this ideal of a multi-ethnic liberal democracy um, is incredibly important. And so, you know, becoming an American was not only a personal choice because I've lived in this country for a long time and love being here, but it was also a political choice. It's that I want to be a full participant in the fight to defend these institutions. So when you see sort of young people in America, on the one hand, I want to say, you know, suddenly everyone's paying attention to the French elections. They can say, they can tell you who the candidates are. Or, or are we as ignorant as we seem? You know, like, are there are these two polls that you hear that, you know, Americans are stuck on their smartphones and don't do anything, but also they seem to be a little bit more attuned to world events as things get more and more dire. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. I, I think there's always been a sort of European narrative of Americans being, you know, so uninformed and so naive and so on. And, and I think that there was never, there was always a little too simple. You know, I know all of these Europeans who are proud of how international they are, but what that means is that they, you know, fly an hour every summer to go on holiday from, you know, France to Italy. Um, and, you know, because 
countries are smaller in Europe and it's easier to cross borders. That makes them feel like they know the world. But they know little, as little about Africa or China um, and so on as, as most people in the United States do. So, so you know, I, I never quite gave credence to, to this idea of American ignorance. I think the more important question is, you know, are people learning about the importance of institutions again? I think it was very easy for people of my generation and, and people who are younger than me to forget about history, to forget about the degree to which um, there are quite horrifying authoritarian alternatives to liberal democracy, and to just focus in on the things that aren't working, the, the injustices which are real, the problems which certainly exist, and conclude, you know what, our system isn't working, let's be open to something new. And as people are starting to see Trump in action, as they're starting to recognize what happens in countries like Turkey and Russia, I hope that there's going to be a little bit of a counter-reaction. But young people are once again going to see, hey, there's actually some things um, that we do value about our political system and that we do want to stand up to defend. Yasha Munk, uh, final question for you. you. You've started this podcast called The Good Fight, and you advertise it as being about the policies and strategies that can beat Trump. Uh, people can subscribe on iTunes if they want to know more about that. But tell us here, what are some of the policies and strategies that can beat Trump? Well, you know, the reason why I'm doing the podcast is that I don't quite have the answer yet, and I'm really <laughs> trying to find it out. So you'll have to listen along with me on the podcast. But um, tactically, what we've seen in 2016 in the United States, and we've seen in 2017 in the French elections a couple of weeks ago, is that populists are now within striking distance of taking over, of winning. But they only do so when um, they manage to put up a convincing candidate um, and when the establishment parties sort of fail, when they don't have a clear vision, when they don't give people hope, when they just say everything is already great. Basically, we live in a political moment in which the populists are nostalgic. They say, make America great again. Let's return to some imagined past. And then often the response from the establishment is to be presentist, to say, you know what, everything's fine, let's not change anything. And instead what we have to do is to be forward-looking, to actually offer people a vision for how politics can improve their lives. And that's a really difficult thing to do. Uh, will you rule out running in 2020, Yasha Monk? Uh, well, yes, since I'm a naturalized citizen, um, that's, the Constitution has ruled it out for oh, me. Oh, that's right. Oh, oh darn! <laughs> Uh, hey, thank you for being our Jew of the Week. It's been a huge pleasure. Uh, if people want to know more about your stuff, they can find you on Twitter at Yasha underscore Munk, but also they can find your podcast, The Good Fight, on iTunes, right? Yes. All right. Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks. Thank Take care. You. Bye-bye. Mazel tovs, Liel? My mazel tov is uh, to my heroic wife. Who ran her first half marathon this weekend? Damn. The, Damn. the Brooklyn half. Yeah, go, heroic wife Lisa. Go, Lisa. The Brooklyn half was really funny. Did you run it alongside her? I, I ran it behind her. Uh, she ran it ahead of me. But the funniest thing about that race was the fact that it goes through Ocean Parkway, um, and which is a Jewish neighborhood. And the race was on Shabbat. So all these 13 and 14-year-old boys are coming out of synagogue as we're sort of passing through their neighborhood. And they're looking, and you could tell that they're thinking, you know, thank you, Hashem, for sending they us all, in, these, they like all these ladies <laughs> in tight running gear. You're like, boys, Shabbat Shalom. This is your reward. Stephanie? I got a model tov to Ben Cohen. It's his birthday on Saturday. Um, the he's, future Ben Butnick. The, yeah, the future 
Ben Butnick. Um, he, yeah, he's finally turning my age. So there's like five months where we're the same age and I don't get to lord it over him that I'm like so much older. Happy birthday, Ben. This relationship just got so much more equal. Yeah. Um, my mazel tov is to my old friend, Rabbi Jordi Gerson, who assumes a new pulpit soon. She's just been appointed senior rabbi of Greenwich Reform Temple in Greenwich, Connecticut, where she'll have access to the stables, to the synagogue stables. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to um, uh, We're the kosher ponies. That's right. They do so, have dollar dressage. <laughs> is that how you say that word? <laughs> yes. Several liveried servants uh, will be at her disposal. She'll never have to lift a finger on Shabbat again. Right. No, but seriously, I'm very excited you're moving back to this coast. I think you're going to bring tremendous um, spiritual sucker and guidance and teaching to the good people of Fairfield County and uh, mazel tov to you. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson and produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Talushkin. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Mordecai Finley. Kosher slaughtering by Richard Spencer. Find Tablet on Facebook. On Twitter, we're at Tablet Mag. Our music is by Golem. And we record in Argo Studios, which is actually the unified capital of Israel. We're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. <laughs>